You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volz, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volz. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today, I am talking with James Rolfe, the Director of Planning and Preservation with the Recovery School District in New Orleans. Welcome, James. Thank you, Taylor. I appreciate you having me. Sure. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Okay. A little bit about myself. I am a New Orleans native. I grew up in Lake Vista, but I live in Gretna. Went to Jesuit High School, and uh, I left to go to Natchitoches, where I got my undergraduate from Northwestern State University. A few years later, I got my graduate degree from Tulane uh, in Preservation Studies. Currently, I work for the Recovery School District to carry out the school facilities master plan, and especially as it relates to historic school buildings. I own Rolf Preservation Works to do preservation consulting work that is outside of, of my work uh, with schools. And I am also an active member in the Gretna and New Orleans preservation communities. Okay. So you your background is in business administration and followed by the Master of Preservation Studies, like you said, from Tulane. What led you from business to preservation? How did you make that step? It, it was a pretty long road, so I'll try to keep it succinct. While I was finishing my, my undergraduate degree in Natchitoches, I was supporting myself financially as a, as a finishing carpenter and a handyman. I was working on various historic homes and a couple of bed and breakfasts in, in what is the oldest permanent settlement in the Louisiana Purchase, Natchitoches, Louisiana. Uh, in 2008, I moved back to New Orleans, and that's around the same time that the real estate bubble popped. So my hopes and dreams of being a real estate appraiser were, were a no-go. So I started working for a local hotel group, and uh, there I learned a lot about major building systems and, and maintenance of large buildings. And after seven years of, of doing that, I decided to follow my passion for hands-on renovation work and learn more about historic rehabilitations. And uh, as I was looking around at various programs, the Masters of Preservation Studies program at Tulane really offered me more than what I was, what I was hoping for. And, and plugged me into both the New Orleans and the national preservation scene. That sounds like a pretty good leap. <laughs> so you, you went to Tulane, you finished up there, and then was your the job with the Recovery School District, was that the first job that you got right out of Tulane? For, yes, uh, and actually I was, I was still in Tulane. My work with the Recovery School District started off as my practicum. Okay. I was doing an amendment to the master plan, the City of New Orleans master plan, uh, for future land use, and my main project actually became changing the future land use of the Carrollton Courthouse so that uh, an investor would be a little bit more ready to, to snatch it up. And they did. And they did. Yeah. So Plans now were submitted, yeah. I think, last week. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so now it's going to be it's going to be a home for it's an elderly home. Yeah, it's a, right an elderly uh, assisted living. Assisted facility. living. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going to be great. I was telling my husband that we we obviously live very close and drive by it quite often. And I remember when there were still kids going to school there, mm -hmm. and I don't remember when the switchover happened when it was vacated. It was just like one day there were kids and then there weren't kids and, right. and it was just kind of empty for a while. So it's good to see that it's going to be used for something anyway. I think they're going to do a really good job on this. Yeah, I hope so. And I did want to go back and just do a quick touch when you're talking about Natchitoches. That is the home of the NCPTT, which yes. we talk about quite a bit on the podcast. In case anybody's wondering, the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training is in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Just a quick touch back because I talk about it all the time, and I know a lot of people may not know where it is, but that's where it is. Yeah, and uh, when I was in Natchitoches and didn't know what preservation was, I had no clue what that building was Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that had the National Park Service emblem on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We got to visit. We went there on a trip uh, when I was in school. We got to go visit and see how they run everything up there, which was really interesting. So so let's move forward to talk about your, your current job with the Recovery School District. So in this position, you work a lot with historic tax credits. 
And one of your big projects was the successful addition of $3 million in credits for the school facilities master plan. Uh, can you talk about that process a little bit? Correct. So um, as I transitioned from uh, this master plan amendment I just talked about, uh, I really started going through all of our ongoing and future historic tax credit projects. And, and one of them stuck out. My boss came to me and said, there's a lot of work to get a little, what we think are, are just a little bit of credits on this one school. And it's Frederick Douglass High School. And um, if you want to do it, do it. If not, you know, it's, it, it was, wouldn't necessarily meant to be. So um, I like a challenge. And I wound up really digging into it and, 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 followed the trail to where I, I was finally able to determine what, what, what the holdup was. And it was, it was a series of deliverables that the State Historic Preservation Office in Baton Rouge needed to, to have in their hands to feel comfortable uh, with this being considered a, a certified historic re- rehabilitation. And it mostly had to do with windows, uh, mm-hmm. which is our main focus on most of our school buildings. And so we... we got all the the right boxes checked off and we had an approved part three and we earned that 3.2 I think million dollars in tax credits and that's real tax credits cash in hand that we are putting towards our next rehabilitation for schools. That sounds like a great project that you were able to do. It's always nice to hear a you know a happy ending and put in a little bit of work and you get you get the response back so that's always good so you also worked on something called a new markets tax credit can you tell us what the difference can you explain what the difference is between that and a historic tax credit sure so i won't get into too many details about historic tax credits because that was covered in in a previous uh, episode of, of your podcast but essentially the new markets can can be done either with a historic facility or or with a brand new one. And the main focus of uh, the new market tax credits is uh, a revitalization of low-income communities. And uh, so basically there is a, a treasury department fund, a federal fund called the CDFI fund. And again, there's a lot of acronyms, and so I won't get into all of them. But its purpose is to incentivize investors to invest into low-income communities, low-income neighborhoods. And so uh, one of the requirements is the property must be considered uh, a low income, in a low income tract, according to the U.S. Census, the most recent U.S. Census. And a requirement is the project, the construction project, has to create both temporary, as in during construction, and permanent jobs, permanent employment for low in what is considered a low income person. Okay. And so through this program, the project itself receives the benefits benefits in the form of an equity investment, so an influx of cash into the project, and that it de- varies depending upon the project. And the, the, the tax credit or the investor gets 30, a 39% tax credit. Wow. Yeah. And, and again, I've oversimplified that. There, there are hours and hours of education that you need to go through in order to fully understand this. But it's just another, another tax credit that you can use on its own or stack with the historic tax credit. Mm-hmm. I can see why that that would be something that would be useful for the the school mm-hmm. school district to use, especially in New Orleans where you do have those low income areas where you you need schools and jobs for students to go to. So yeah, that's pretty interesting. That was that was something that um, I hadn't heard of before, and I wanted to make sure we touched on it in case there was anyone out there that that thought it was interesting. So there was an, another thing I noticed on your CV that you sent me that you mentioned something called a FEMA-mandated interpretive display <laughs> for historic schools. Can you talk about what that is? Sure. So it's, it's really, it really coincides with the schools that we are not doing an historic renovation of. So either the school is too far gone and we're building a new one or we're rebuilding part of it to where we, we still don't qualify the, for the historic tax credits. So a, as, as an agreement uh, for this $1.8 billion in FEMA fundings that we were, funding that we were granted post-Katrina for the recovery of the schools, 
we still need to recognize the the historic historic aspects of the school, what what made it important, and uh, why we should remember it. It varies, but for the most part, it, it can be a series of panels that display the original architectural drawings. It'll be newspaper articles from around the time the school was built or any particular special events that happened there, special alumni, and the, if there was a special curricula, like if it was a more or less a career technology center where, say, brick, brick masons learned their craft and they, okay. uh, they had samples, you know, we'll hang those samples if, if we have them intact. Mm-hmm. So we're really trying to tell the story of the school and why it was important not only uh, to what happened on that site, but the city of New Orleans. Oftentimes we will accompany these panels with uh, a video. And there is one up at one of our schools, Carver, which really talks about the, the 1952 master plan and dealing with white flight and segregation. It's, it's, a, it's a very important story that needed to be told, and we were, we were happy to provide that for, for the public to see because it is supposed to be available for the public to see and to recognize the importance of these buildings. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, in, in the back of the gym somewhere where people don't see it. It's no, it is generally it is, like in a lobby area yes. or something like that. Okay. Displayed prominently. Okay. And do you know, I, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, do you know if that's FEMA did something similar to other places where they got Katrina money, like maybe in Mississippi or Alabama or Oh, Do you yes. know of any other I would, places? I would, I would assume, and, and I don't know specific sites, but I would assume that if there's FEMA funding attached to an historic property, then they would, FEMA EHP, Environmental and Historic Preservation arm of FEMA, will likely require this as part of their memorandum of agreement, their MOA, with whoever they're giving these, these funds to. Okay, okay. I'll have to look it up and see if I can find some other examples of that because... It sounds really neat, and it was something that I had never heard of before. So yeah. I'd like to see it if it's in use in other places too. And these are these are museum quality displays, so mm-hmm. it'll be pretty obvious. And uh, so, are you involved in the production of those displays? So, do you do like the research and then create like the actual how it's going to be sure. displayed? Sure. So I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself, but. It is not just me. I cannot take credit <laughs> for that. We have a really awesome team. We have a joint venture, uh, the Jacob CSRS joint venture, uh, along with uh, we have an historic architect who they really do the heavy lifting, and I work with with them closely to develop some of these panels as I've come on board. There was a lot of work done before I came on board. But yes, there is a lot of research going to the archives, pulling pictures from, from newsreels and microfiche and such. And so, yes, I do get, get down dirty with that. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. In addition which which to, I love. I love the research. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to everything else that it seems like you do, <laughs> wear a lot of hats. That I, I find that almost everybody that I've, well, pretty much everybody that I've talked to so far has been a, a multi-hat uh, preservationist for sure. So another part of your job is advising contractors of the proper treatment of historic materials via preservation briefs. So what um, resources do you use to compile those, that type of information that you put in the briefs? Well, certainly my, my first stop is uh, the National Park Service. And they, have, they have their preservation, preservation briefs online, and they, they have a lot of technical briefs that accompany those as well. And there's a lot of good information there. And there's also uh, a sources cited section. So you kind of follow the breadcrumbs and you go to their primary sources and, and you see if there's anything new that has come forward. The, uh, the Association for Preservation Technology International, APTI, they put a lot of really good information out there, a lot of really technical stuff. And um, you mentioned the NCPTT, the National Center for Preservation Technology and, Tra- Technology and Training in Natchitoches. Every, every year, every summer, they are they're conducting new case studies on paints and primers and stucco and so on and so forth. And they, they do a really good job of making that information publicly available. Mm-hmm. 
old old school books from when we, when we were in Tulane. I have several of my preservation technology books on my bookshelf at work that I, I use all the time. And believe it or not, social media. They have the the, the preservation professionals group mm-hmm. online. And I've, I've put up pictures and thrown questions out there. And I've, I've had overwhelming response from people all over the country who have said, oh, this is Vermont Slate, and you can get it at this yard here because we are, we're, we're in this microcosm here in New Orleans. So yeah. it's easy to uh, put the horse blinders on and yeah. only see what's <laughs> in front of you. But, you know, a lot of materials were shipped from, from all over the country, mm-hmm. especially, you know, if it, if it had anything to do with masonry and, 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 and rocks and such. And I'm always attending symposiums and going to conferences and that's that's incredibly important to me uh, not only for professional development but just for that technical information that you can gather and picking people's brains that you would otherwise not not run into and of course scouring the internet for for articles Mm -hmm. googling it yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's that's always my last (laughs) my last venue my last avenue but um Sometimes it, it helps to just find something like that. Yeah, because I think sometimes you you don't know what you're going to find, and you might come across something interesting or something that'll take you to the right person or the right place. It's 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 always good to try every avenue that you can to sort of find what you're looking for. So cool. That sounds like a really interesting part of your job. I always like to hear people's stories about where they get their information from. So. You are also responsible for ensuring compliance in grants and tax credit programs during renovations. What does that entail? Well, I, it's, it's a lot of meetings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I attend a lot of OAC meetings, owner-architect contractor meetings. And again, I mentioned our preservation architect that, that we work with. And, and so I, I work directly with her and her staff. Uh, and they and they're great. And so, if there's ever any little red flag that may go off, and you know, if they're the the contractor, the architect is changing something in the scope of work that is not necessarily on the tax credit application, I'll I'll wave her down and say, Hey, what do you think about this? And it's either, Oh, that that's fine, don't worry about it, or Yeah, we really need to do an amendment and make sure that the the shippo is aware of this and is okay with this. Mm-hmm. But it's really, I mentioned the SHPO, it's, it's keeping that open line of, of communication with the SHPO. And honestly, a lot of the work comes after construction is complete. And a lot of people don't realize that, but I spend a great deal of time working on, uh, working with our CPAs on cost certifications. When you're, when you're working within the confines of an entire master plan where you've had several projects per school site and that school site can include more than one building there's a lot of uh, data retrieval a lot of document retrieval that you mm-hmm. that you need to do and so not only do you not need to know where it is but you need to know what specifically to look for mm-hmm. so because of that a lot of what I do is really just organizing the information and, and keeping up with the paperwork be it Permits, you know, substantial completion documents, architectural documents, construction documents, all, all of that. And there's a lot of it. There's yeah. There's a lot of it out there. I, I, I quickly ran out of room on my Google Drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. I, I, and I imagine with the school district being as large as it is that, yeah, if you've got multiple projects going on all the time, you just have to stay on top of all of those different things. And I, I I would probably get confused. I'd probably mix things up. I kind of know like how I operate and I might, I would be like, which building is that? Um, no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm taking this grant writing course right now. And because that's not something that I have the skills in. And so that's been a real eye opener to learn about the types of things that may be asked of you to to get grant money, and those quantifiable, measurable results that you often have to provide, especially if you if it's like a continuing, you know, like, grant money on a yearly basis so all that stuff's been really interesting to me and it it is all like paper organization and data retrieval and all that stuff so I forgot to mention at the beginning of the podcast that you just got promoted so this the director of planning and preservation is your new position 
do you still are you still the community liaison <laughs> or is that somebody else now um we're all community liaisons okay. <laughs> <laughs> to give you a very political answer um no i uh essentially with with my new position i've really built on my old responsibilities so and you know there's different ways that people might think of well what does a community liaison do with with my work of course it has evolved since i first started but there's still a good bit of relationship building and maintaining and it's it's really important to to work well with our locally elected officials the crt staff up in baton rouge and and the school board members and the school board staff mm-hmm. and um that just maintaining a, a, a good relationship with them really helps to grease the wheels and and, and keeps the projects on track on track but the uh, and and that again that aspect of my job is really about staying in touch with the local community the preservation community and really doing a lot of listening because as anyone who works for a public entity knows there's a lot of criticism out there mm-hmm. and uh, you don't always have the answer so it's it's really important to listen and some people just want to know that their voice is being heard mm-hmm. and one of the, the benefits of my job and having such a, a tight-knit group that I work with is if there really is a legitimate concern that and there is something that we can do something to remedy that we will mm-hmm. uh, and we'll, we'll listen we'll listen to whatever needs to be done and, and we will act on it if it is within our power it's easy to develop these relationships that make you more approachable when you're when you're active in the community and especially mm-hmm. when I'm volunteering or get voluntold uh, <laughs> I think we're all familiar with the voluntold oh yeah <laughs> um, but I but I try to stay active with organizations like DC Poor and Louisiana Landmarks and and uh, Gretna Historical Society. That's it. That's that's really good. It's good to be visible and it's good to be approachable. And that is how I guess I continue as a community liaison. Yeah, <laughs> I can I can see how it it is important to to have those community relationships uh, when with especially since what you're doing specifically directly impacts these communities. You know, these are the places where you know, their kids go to school. It's where the teachers that live in that area are employed. And it, and it is so important that people know what's happening and to have a name and a face that they can put on those big projects. Even if they don't necessarily have a bunch of questions to ask, just knowing who they can ask can be helpful and, and calm, I guess, calm feel, fears for some people too, sort of in the long run. Have you ever had anybody present an idea maybe in a in a meeting or an event that uh, maybe somebody from the community and you went you know that's a really good idea and you were you were actually able to like follow through with that change or or something like that do you have an example that you could share maybe yeah um i i I, as you were saying that i I just thought we, we have community engagement meetings whenever we are getting ready to start a project and you know there's a lot of people like oh you know there's so many cars whenever there's a school. It's like, well, the school's there. It hasn't been open for years. So, yeah, you guys have been enjoying not having cars there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but there are going to be cars there again. And so there's always that complaint. You can never have enough parking. But but there have been some other legitimate complaints about, uh, say, noise from the band. And, okay. And if we're still in the design phase, you know, we can move the band room or uh, now we use sound dampening panels. And so it's funny to see, you know, sound dampening panel next to a historic window. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we have that in, in most of our schools, at least the ones that I, that I uh, have been a part of. And uh, let's see, there's some, something else. There was uh, there actually was a legitimate parking issue at one I kind of took that one to heart because I got to talking to one of the community members who was outspoken about it, and, and I brought it to to uh, my bosses, and I said, hey, you know, is there anything we can do about this? I know we get this complaint all the time. And and they said, well, why don't you take a look around and see if there's any empty lots uh, or see if, you know, there's a church that they only need the lot on a Sunday. And that actually happened. And wow. so uh, we started conversations with the church across the street and we were able to 
alleviate some of that parking pressure. So mm -hmm. it, it is good to be outspoken on the community side, and it's good to listen on the developer side. Mm -hmm. Speaking of parking issues, we live right by Lusher Elementary mm -hmm. School, which is a block from here. And I experienced that firsthand <laughs> <laughs> with n not just parking, but just general traffic when it's time to pick the kids up from school. And because it's an elementary school, I feel like there's a little bit more because the, the parents are coming to get their kids and lots of little kids everywhere. And, and we do have, when they have events, there's nowhere to park on the street outside. And Lusher is actually one that the recovery school district worked on. I think that was before you, because it's been open. Well, it was before me, but I did do the tax credit cost certifications on oh. Porsche and Lusher. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it was, um, it was an OPSB mm -hmm. project after that. Okay. Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's because I, I was looking on the website and I was looking at the list of, of schools and I was like, hey, that one's right by my house. I know exactly <laughs> what that one's talking about. But yeah, I can understand the parking thing because I, I feel that just being a, a resident in the neighborhood and I can imagine it's frustrating for the people that have to pick up their kids, you know, with these schools that are sort of buried in these really old neighborhoods with little tiny streets, how to get around and how to get the kids back and forth and stuff like that, so... And as we have gone forward, we have recognized that, that it continues to be an issue. And so we try to work as closely as we can with the charter to get them to really form a, an advantageous relationship with the neighbors to really work things out and to get neighbor feedback. And uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it's the status quo. Yeah. Well, I mean, we knew when we moved here that there was a school right there. So you kind of have to think, you know, you, you know, you know what's going to happen. It's not the first school we've lived. When we <laughs> lived in mid city. We were near an elementary school, too. So, you know, it's kind of one of those things. So mm -hmm. let's move forward a little bit to one of my favorite things to talk about is to ask my guests about what their favorite things are. So what has been your favorite project to work on? with the recovery school district? That's a good question. Uh, and, and if I were a parent, I would say, uh, I love all of my children equally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my dad would say that to, to us. We, there were four of us. Very diplomatic answer. Yeah. Um, however, in truth, I am, I'm proud of the work that the recovery school district has done as a whole over the, the entire school facilities master plan that we are, that we are executing. We've, we've really left an impact on the city and, uh, and the post-Katrina recovery here in New Orleans. But if I had to pick a project to date, because we still have projects in the pipeline, right. I, I'd say that I was most proud of our work at John McDonough High School on Esplanade. And again, I say the recovery school district, but we really, really rely on other people as part of our team. Again, the Jacob CSRS program management group, our, our funding team, our FEMA team, our OPSB team, because it's everybody's got to be moving in the same direction. So mm -hmm. I'd love to say it was just an RSD project, but we were successful because of everyone else working with us. And I think I would also consider it our most successful project, my, my favorite project, excuse me, because it's our most visible project right now. Um, it's on Esplanade Avenue, which is one of the, the most picturesque streets in New Orleans. And, I, and finally, I would say that I would pick that one because it's my first project that I was there from the groundbreaking to the ribbon cutting. Mm -hmm. And so it holds a special place in my heart. Mm -hmm. Is that the one that's on like near the corner of Esplanade and Broad? Or uh, yeah, well, there are two McDonough schools. Uh, there's McDonough 28 that's right down the street, but it is on John McDonough High School is between uh, Dorjanois and Rochablave. Okay, if that gives you a better idea. Yeah. Right, right by Bayou Road. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I yeah I have a friend that lives on Bayou Road, so I I pass by you know like I know that area, but uh, sometimes I get the schools confused. <laughs> but I know there's some over there, so I was trying to remember. And the names change all the time. Yes, that's true. They do change, yeah. Uh, this used to, John McDonough High School used to be called the Esplanade Avenue School for Girls. Okay. It was an all-girls school. Huh, interesting. I think that that 
what you were mentioning is is a good example of that preservation does not exist in a vacuum. It's not, you know, the the more relationships you have with other organizations in the city, the easier it is, I, I feel, the easier it is to get things done. Because you, if you're having an issue or you're having a question or, you know, you know who to reach out to if you have a, a relationship with those people. And, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily other preservation organizations or even government organizations. It can be a local green project mm-hmm. or, you know, a local transportation group. And maybe you're working on something and you want to get some uh, bike traffic or foot traffic and you reach out to a group that does, um, you know, bike rentals or a bike uh, rack things. I can't, I can't think of the word right now. And, and that becomes part of your project. And I think that it is important to remember those things, that it, it's not a vacuum. It's not always just who can raise money to, to work on this one thing. There are other people that can help you accomplish what you need. You get something, they get something out of it, and, and it's good for the community overall and in the long run. So I think that's what you were talking about. Those other groups that you work with is important because there are other groups that could benefit from what preservation does. And besides, like what Leah said, it's not the pretty committee. Mm-hmm. As much as sometimes <laughs> we would like it to be, there are other factors that, that you know play in, and it helps with that, I think. Very true, very true. Ever, there are so many people who, who stand to benefit from a preservation or historic tax credit project who may not be preservationists and may not like old buildings, but they do see certain uh, economic or community benefits, and they're mm-hmm. happy to they're happy to uh, well benefit from that. Yeah, when it's when it's all said and done, they're like, oh yeah, no, that was totally a great idea. I was totally on board with that from the very beginning. <laughs> so, what would you say is the most rewarding aspect of your current position? Oh man, so this is. I'm glad that we scheduled this chat today uh, because I'll talk again about John McDonough. Last week, uh, we had, oh, I'm sorry, it was earlier earlier this week, we had an amazing ribbon-cutting ceremony. And the, the best part about that event was the actual moment when they cut the ribbon and the kids from Bricolage Academy absolutely lost their mind. Oh, my gosh. They cheered louder than I've heard anybody cheer, <laughs> <laughs> and and they were so happy to be uh, learning in an environment that is now state of the art. And you know maybe maybe they had respect for the history, maybe they didn't. But it's re- it's just a really good renovation. It's a really good building, and I think I think they recognize that. So as cliche as it may sound, you know it's all about the kids. Yeah, and, uh, we're building schools, so it really is all about the kids. But, but in general, in preservation, it's about the end user. It's great to preserve a building, but who or what are you preserving it for? Right. It's, yes, it's a piece of artwork, but it's not just that. The mm-hmm. Buildings are meant to be used. And so if you have your end user who is super excited to use and work in that building, then that's, that's the best part of it for me. Mm-hmm. On the opposite end of that, what would you say is the most challenging aspect? <laughs> Again, diplomacy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is my first government job. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you might know where I'm going with this. Uh, before that, I worked in the private sector. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to government-run and government-funded projects, uh, especially those with high political visibility, um, nothing moves quickly. Right. And most of the time, it's because you're, you're trying to be careful, right? Uh, especially with the recovery school district, again, end user being kids, it's, there's, there's high sensitivity mm-hmm. on that. So uh, nobody makes quick or rash decisions on that. You have so many stakeholders, uh, not, and it's not, again, it's not just the end user, but actual stakeholders for these projects. So you really need to take the time to make sure you limit or even eliminate your risks uh, and your exposure to liability, and while at the same time delivering a great product. Mm-hmm. So, plus there's you know there's approvals that have to go all the way up through the state level and and working with uh, local ordinances and officials and and so on and so forth. And so, 
at times it could be frustrating uh, because you don't have the same issues in the private sector, but at the end of it, actually, I, I, I'm really happy to be doing what I'm doing. Well, I think that's really the most important thing. As long as you like what you're doing, what is that? You never work a day in your life. Oh yeah. As long as you love what you're doing. That's 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 what I keep hearing anyway. I mean, you know, yeah. that's I'll, what they tell me. I won't go on and on about how great my job is, but uh, it it really does not feel like work to me. Good. That's good. So let's move away from your job at the school district. Let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff you, the other preservation work that you do. So you recently finished the rehabilitation of your family's home in old Gretna. Can you talk about that? Sure. So it's a double shotgun. Uh, It was built as a single family, but it is a double shotgun. It's my ancestral home. It was built by my great-great-grandfather, and I am the fifth generation to, to own it. Wow. Uh, 1881 is when it was built. It's a uh, barge board. It's three blocks from the Mississippi River, which is where the barge boards came from. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I first took possession of the house in 2009, my goal was really just to stabilize it. There was a lot wrong with it. I, I don't know when the last time it was properly maintained. There was, at least on one side, there was paint peeling and wallpaper peeling. Uh, there was bad termite damage, particularly in one bathroom, and there were there were areas of rot on the floors themselves, and uh, so a lot of water intrusion issues. The plumbing and electrical was was dated and failing. I took I have a, a good buddy of mine who's a master plumber who really helped me out. We took the galvanized pipe off, and you could not put a pencil uh, oh my gosh. through all the buildup. <laughs> oh. So, and just think, that's what you're using in your house, that water. But um, Oh, I'm, I have no doubt that some of our pipes look like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, but virtually anyone in New Orleans who has Absolutely. galvanized pipe. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I treated it for termites. I actually installed termite shields over all 50-something, 60 piers by jacking the house up over each one of those piers. Wow. By myself. Well, wow. <laughs> help, help from siblings and, and sliding the termite shields over it. Gutted and rebuilt an entire bathroom, installed new plumbing, new electric throughout because it was the old knob and tube. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a few singe marks around some of these outlets <laughs> that I didn't feel too comfortable with. Sure. <laughs> layers and layers of and layers of linoleum of course on the floors wind up pulling off of that pulling that off and uh and exposing all of this beautiful heart pine mm-hmm. which of course i had to refinish mm-hmm. um replaced the sheet completely replaced the sheetrock on one side because there was no pulling the four maybe five in some places layers of wall pl- wallpaper and yes oh. I did save some of okay. the wallpaper. <laughs> and and we'll, we'll come back to lessons learned in, okay. in a minute. <laughs> because when I started this, I didn't know what preservation was. Mm-hmm. Um, pulled all of the windows out, the doors out, and had the paint stripped. And uh, not just the doors and windows, but the frames to go with them, plus mm-hmm. all the picture molding and all the baseboards and yeah, so on and so forth. Had them stripped and either primed them and repainted them or sealed them because there w- there was evidence that there was a clear coat in on some of the moldings in the house, which, mm-hmm. which was interesting and that was that was a question that the shipo brought up with me and I had to prove that that was the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, like I said, the list really goes on. I mean, I, I I could talk about it for days, and I know some of my colleagues are certainly tired of hearing about this house. But and and like I said, the funny thing is, I, I didn't know what preservation was, or and I certainly didn't know what historic tax credits were when I first started doing this. But I knew that I loved old houses. I loved these old features, and I wanted to keep them. And some of it, I wanted to reuse things because it was economical, and, mm-hmm. I, and I knew I can just sand something down and put it back up, and not have to buy it, and just put my lab- labor into it. Mm-hmm. And and some of it was just. I was an undiscovered preservationist, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> well, that seems to be, you know, people sort of, I like to say, they some some people just kind of back into it. 
you know, without that being their primary goal, they just turn into sort of an accidental preservationist and then it becomes there's something they're really interested in. So that's kind of neat. And it's good to hear a story that from somebody that when you started the project, you, you didn't know, you didn't have the, the history and, and the education and you kind of had to go go with kind of what your gut was telling you, I guess, with the stuff. And I definitely see the paint layers in so much of not just in where I live now, but there's just layers of paint on all the trim, like layers and layers and layers of paint. Nobody's ever stripped anything. And they're just like, we'll just paint it white again. And then it's a different color. And then, and then things don't fit right anymore because the paint's so thick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, Oh, it just, yes. So I understand. I understand why you did that. You did. Yeah. And it is good to do, to take all the trim off too. Right. Again, because of this. But some people might cringe because, um, you know, some people say that these layers of paint show change over time. Mm -hmm. Right. Of course, the, the, the tenant who was occupying the house before I I, I took it over smoked inside Uh. and there was, I'm sure there were more labor intensive ways of getting rid of that smell, but. I wanted that that old yellow, which used to be white paint, right, <laughs> to to go away. Yeah, and um, and that's that's the only way I knew how to do it at the time. So, are you currently living there? I am. I was living in it through the whole project. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I was living on a mattress on the floor without sheetrock on the walls, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, light light switches just hanging down, and at the high, at the high point, I was living on one finished side, and um, and working on the other side. But yes, I I I'm living in it, and uh, like I said, it, it did take a while. Uh, about halfway through the project, I quit my job at the hotel and I enrolled in the program at Tulane, and I uh, really thought I'd be able to finish it. And there was no way that I was working on anything other than my schoolwork. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. But the the silver lining was, so the house was a catalyst for me to get involved and learn more about preservation. And then in doing so and in going through the program at Tulane, I learned more about the do's and don'ts of a historic rehabilitation and tax credits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I had I had... Fortunately, not made enough mistakes to where I could not go back and uh, apply for historic tax credits. Mm-hmm. So I did, and I got my uh, residential historic tax credit when they were still still doing still those. doing the program. Yeah. I think I got I think I got my application in like December twentieth or something, and they stopped the program December thirty first. Yeah, but uh, I got it in there and. It is a certified rehabilitation, historic rehabilitation. Nice. That's very cool. You'll have to show me some pictures of it. Oh, I'm, certainly. I'm interested to see what it looks like. I always like seeing people's little projects. So in addition to all of that stuff, you also have your own firm, which is Rolf Preservation Works, which is currently directing the restoration of St. Joseph's Church, which is also in Gretna. And what types of things are involved with that project? Uh, so the main scope of work on that project, um, it, it is a it is a 1927 uh, Spanish colonial revival, excuse me, Spanish mission revival, mission colonial revival, depending upon who you ask, stucco building. Uh, it is the third St. Joseph's Church on that site. <laughs> okay. Um, and it is it has these elaborate Spanish Baroque details on it. It's so cool. And so in the 1980s. Um, there was a coat of elastomeric paint that was put over the whole thing oh. because that was the miracle product at the mm-hmm. time. And you know, who's to say that if we didn't have it today, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't think it's a good idea. But the scope is to remove all of that elastomeric and to go back with uh, an approved semi-permeable product uh, that will prevent any further water intrusion uh, into the church. Okay. So. Is that still a functioning church? Yes, they it still is. use it? Yes, okay. It is. And is that the only thing that you're doing with it right now? Is there any plans for more work to the inside or anything like that? The inside is in pretty good shape. So we, because uh, it's my church, I say we, um, we had a new pastor who started, I think it was two years ago, and 
and much like previous pastors, he wanted to be a good custodian of the building. Mm-hmm. And so he started noticing some, some water issues and how just rough it looked on the outside. Uh, and so before things got too bad and plaster started falling off of the walls and the interior, he decided, let's get this thing sealed up. Mm-hmm. Let's seal the envelope. And so that's what we're doing. But we, um, when I started talking to, uh, talking to the pastor and those on the finance committee about the possibility of tax credits, they said, well, we also have another, another project on the same site, and it's the, the old school auditorium, St. Joseph's School Auditorium, which was, uh, I, found, I found a newspaper article that said that ground was broken one year after the completion of the church. Oh. Uh, so, again historic mm-hmm. and we were able it's a smaller scope of work they have some issues on the interior with termite damage and we need to resell the envelope as well but we're able to combine those two scopes of work and put in one historic tax credit application which was approved great and um and we will start probably after the first of the year on mm-hmm. that so we haven't started yet mm-hmm. um and and, and I, I won't i won't drop any names but we have a an, an excellent architect on the project who has worked on with the archdiocese on a number of other churches here mm-hmm. uh, in new orleans uh and the the archdiocese is the project manager so okay very similar very similar to what my work at uh the recovery school district i am i will be attending the oac meetings with the contractors the pre-construction meetings i attended the pre-bid meetings and so working with all all of the players to ensure that we we comply with and do not jeopardize the requirements of our historic tax credits. Cool. That sounds like a neat project. So how did you get involved with that one? How do you find <laughs> those types of projects? Were you just like at church one day and they were talking about it or did somebody recommend you? How did, how did that come about? So for, for those of you who are from New Orleans and don't know or are not from New Orleans, Gretna is a very small town. <laughs> um, everybody knows everybody. Everybody looks out for everybody. And it, it's a great place to live. And you're still close to New Orleans. That being said, so I'm on the board for Gretna Historical Society. And one of my fellow board members approached me and knew about the work that it did with schools and said, can we get grants? Or I don't know if he actually said tax credits, but is there funding available to help us pay for this? Mm-hmm. Um, because we're a church, we're a nonprofit, we're not really income producing per se. And I said, absolutely, because I, I know that they did work over at St. Stephen's using historic tax credit. So I, it's been done. Mm-hmm. And so I, I called, I called uh, my uncle, who is a parishioner at St. Stephen's, and I asked him who to talk to, and the conversation just went from there. So I got all the ins and outs, and uh, I came back, and I, I met with the St. Joseph's Finance Committee, and I said, I'm happy to help you all with this. Here's, here's the process, and I wanted to be as transparent as I could because when you start talking about putting restrictions on a project and having an application fee for a program that people haven't heard about, mm-hmm. uh, you start getting looks. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, But everybody more or less understood what the process was, and we decided to move forward with it. So really, to answer your question, it's word of mouth, and mm-hmm. um, I... I love what I do in general, not just for RSD, but I love being a preservationist, and I love telling everyone the benefits of preservation, <laughs> Yeah, and probably uh, to the annoyance of some, but I talk about it enough, and especially I, I, I hark the benefits of historic tax credits, because it's, it's like money, and mm-hmm. money talks, mm-hmm. and as soon as you start talking about that, everybody's ears perk up, and they want to know more. And they're like, well, you know, I have this house or, you know, my uncle has this building. And it's like, are they doing historic tax credits? And you start the conversation. You almost try to sell yourself without being too pushy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, it doesn't matter to me if they use me to do their tax credit work. All that matters to me is that they are good custodians of an historic building. Mm-hmm. And they continue to maintain it in a way that everyone else can, can benefit from. Yeah, that seems to be a pretty common theme. And everybody that I've talked to so far is, you know, people, they want to share their information. 
and they just want things to be like you just said they they want it to be usable they want things to be nice and it's not it's not a competition it's just everybody's out there doing what they like to do and you know like you said it doesn't matter who does it as long as it, as long as it gets done and and it continues to be something that people enjoy that that seems a very very common theme that mm-hmm. i've that i've come across <laughs> talking to everybody so it's good to know. I'm, I'm glad I'm, I've got a good circle of people, too, that are not out there just like, you know, being like, give me all the money. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of that probably kind of answers my next question was, what's your favorite thing about working in preservation? Sure. Um, well, I can I can expand on a little bit. The, the, the short answer is it's the sense of community. So when you when you're working towards a common goal with sometimes perfect strangers, you it, it it foments this this instant bond that you have with your fellow preservationists and um, it, I, I know I know that I'm promoting something that is important and that benefits other people and so it's I guess my favorite thing is sharing that with everyone because that in, in and of itself is is rewarding just enlightening other people about how how great this building is and all it takes is a little bit of this and it could, it could you know, live for another hundred years. Mm-hmm. So do you think that your background in business has been beneficial to your current position? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, especially again, since I work in the tax credit world, my, my background in business, uh, Northwestern State University, our capstone class in, in business administration was a finance class. So we did a lot of finance and accounting classes, and that has served me better than I could imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I didn't want to be an accountant, but I work with accountants on a daily basis, and it's good to be able to speak their language. Do you think it's it would be beneficial for people in preservation to have some type of business training? Certainly. I think that, that everyone in general, not just preservationists, uh, can benefit from at least in introduction to business administration and uh, you were talking about preservation community and, and us sharing about half or more of the my colleagues that work in preservation have their own business mm-hmm. they are they are sole proprietors mm-hmm. and so they're running a business and if they don't already know how to do it they could definitely benefit from at least an introductory course to to business management yeah, I think that would be, a, for me anyway, that would that would probably be one of my biggest concerns if I wanted to start up my own consulting business um, because I, I don't have any background in that at all. So I would have to learn quite a bit before I got started. I'd be like, oh, I have Excel. I can balance my own books. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think that would be something good for people to have. I think little skills like that all add up, you know, to make one valuable preservationist mm-hmm. i guess <laughs> definitely no you um you need to be self-sustaining and, and you need to be able to deal with the part of preservation that is is not as appealing as, as the rest and that that's just the grunt work and the paperwork and, and making sure the machinery behind the 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 beautiful part of preservation is is moving as it should mm-hmm. and and you're right you could burn yourself out if you have your own preservation company and and you're passionate about preservation and, and you know how to do tax credits and all this, but then you don't know how to balance your books or to interact uh, with with those who kind of control your financial destiny. Mm-hmm. I do notice a lot, like you were talking about the the preservation, the professionals group that's on Facebook. I, I see a lot of questions in that group about people that are have their own consulting business or want to start and they're trying to figure out what to charge and percentages and stuff like that. And again, that's another good, you know, a good resource for people to, to look into. But I do see, I see a lot of questions about that, about where to start with that sort of thing. Yeah, that's very, it's very intimidating. Yeah. Definitely. Well, and, and if anybody's wondering, as a resource, there are small business development centers on uh, on various college campuses. I think UNO has one, maybe maybe Loyola, but it's it's really easy. Just do a quick Google search, and, um, and usually their help is free, if not always. Mm-hmm. 
that's a good resource to have too. Okay. Well, I think um, we have got one question left. Do you have any other advice or any advice in general for someone looking to get into the preservation field? I do. If you are passionate about preservation and you're, and you're eager to learn your craft, then you've already won half the battle. The other half is learning how to develop these relationships that I keep talking about. I know that it can be overwhelming, especially if you're new to an area, especially if you're new to an area like New Orleans, where it's the biggest little city, mm -hmm. um, or if you're just a shy person. I know that can be that can be difficult to get over, but I have found that in developing these relationships, um, it really that is the key to your success, and it's been the, it's been the key to my success in in these projects is. Is, and, and being able to move them forward and gather information. And, and another thing is the preservation job market is highly competitive. Mm -hmm. Anytime there's a job that comes comes out, it's like there are hundreds and hundreds of applicants. Yeah. Uh, especially like in a place like New Orleans or Charleston or, or any of these, these big preservation areas um, that produce masters of preservation students right. like you know a factory yeah um and so everybody's looking for jobs and so what's going to set you apart is is going to be talking to important people who you might not normally feel comfortable talking to and not only talking to them but saying something or having a conversation with them that sets you apart and lets them remember you mm -hmm. just one conversation can make a difference uh, and it can make a difference about getting a job or not uh, in the future. Maybe not at that moment. Maybe you're not looking for a job at that moment. But I've, I've had this happen to me where people that I've had random conversations with who had my card said, hey, are you, are you looking for a job right now? We're, we're looking to fill such and such position. Mm -hmm. And if you're not looking for a job, if you're set, most of the time, if you're trying to get a project off the ground, it's going to involve a lot of fundraising. Mm -hmm. And you, you got to sell, sell, sell. Yeah. You know, it's not just about a pretty building. It's about having that, having that rapport with someone who is going to be the one to get you the money or be the one to introduce you to the person who's going to get you the money. Mm -hmm. So it really, it really is, it really is about those relationships. And if you don't develop that relationship or conversation skills or, 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 or feel comfortable, or even if you don't feel comfortable, if you just don't approach people, you might not be able to save that building that deserves to be preserved. Mm -hmm. That's been a big thing for me is because I, I do tend to, I mean, people who listen to this that don't know me personally may not agree with this, but I tend to be on the introverted shy side of things and and making connections and and going to events and, and networking and meeting people is difficult for me and this podcast this project has been like a huge help with that because it forces me to talk to people that I wouldn't normally talk to not just here in the in like doing the interviews but when I go to conferences and I go to meetings and things, it, it, you know, I want to tell people about what I'm doing. So it sort of forces me to talk to people that I wouldn't, I would probably normally not approach. I'd probably stand in the back with my husband and, you know, have a drink or something. So it, I can definitely understand that part. It, it is a skill that you kind of have to develop and making those connections and networking. And f for me over the past year, it, I think it really started with Kelly, Kelly Calhoun, who was on, on the podcast before. And she's connected me with so many people over the past year that it's just been, it's just been great. And, but I would never have had that opportunity had I not met her, you know, and made that connection. And now I have all these other connections and it's great. So yeah, I think that's a really good, that is a good thing to talk about. And that's something that nobody's mentioned so far on the podcast, really. They're always like, go to school or, you know, <laughs> join a group, which are all good things too. But, you know, if you can't talk to other people, then, you know, right. that can, that can make a difference too. But, so. but you, even, even with going to school, just, you know, forming a bond with your, your, your colleagues, your classmates. And then, you know, if you're, if you're in a program that is really putting you out there in the community, and, you know, we had this advocacy class 
that we would go and we would visit different organizations, be they nonprofit or, or private ventures in organization. And it's, these were a lot of the movers and shakers. And, mm-hmm. um, and I'm, it might not seem like it, but I was nervous, but you, you fake it till you make it. Right. <laughs> you know, you go up to them and, you know, your, your hand's shaking and your, your voice is waving and, and you say, hey, um, James, please employ me in a year from now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I they're they've made so many changes to the program. I things that I wish that they had had when I was in it. You know, like we didn't do anything like that. There was no sort of advocacy type training, and I think there's GIS stuff now, mm-hmm. which is not something we had, which I would love to learn. And you know, that wasn't there when I was there, and I graduated in 2016, two short years ago. Yeah, that's something new, and we're actually gonna talk about that on a very soon podcast we will be talking about that class and some other things so it's pretty exciting but I think that's about it for my questions today do you have anything else that you want to mention no I think I've talked enough (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you very much for being with us today James thanks Taylor hey everybody thank you so much for listening to this episode let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes If you would like to get a direct link to our guests' information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination. Mm-hmm.